2011, a murder shocked St. John, New Brunswick, when a prominent citizen was killed in his office. Though the police zeroed in on his son quickly as a suspect, it would take years to build the case against him. And the resolution of the legal case would take just about as long. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. This is part two of a two-part series, so if you have not listened to the first part, I recommend going back and checking it out. Again, I want to send a huge thank you to Christy from Canadian True Crime for her research on this case. It was incredible to work with her on this, and I hope you check out her coverage of the case as well. Different podcasters include different information and focus on different things, and she went out to three parts to cover everything, so I recommend checking it out. The main sources used were CBC New Brunswick, The Telegraph Journal, CTV Atlantic, The Canadian Press, and Bobby Jean McKinnon's best-selling book, Shadow of Doubt. When we left off, the Crown had made it through the preliminary hearing and managed to keep their key piece of evidence in at the trial of 47-year-old Dennis Oland. It began in September 2015, over four years since the murder of 69-year-old Richard Oland, who was Dennis's father. At the preliminary hearing, the judge was not entirely swayed by the financial motive presented by the Crown. Nevertheless, that was still what they went with in their opening statement at trial, that Dennis's financial issues were at the root of this, whether Dennis wanted his inheritance or he was angry that his father, Richard, wouldn't help him. They pointed to the debt to his father, one he had a hard time sticking to the payment plan on, within the months prior to Richard's death. But the defense countered that Dennis was not new to being behind on these repayments to Richard. It had happened before this point, and Richard always worked with Dennis on it until he got back to where he could pay. There was never any problem before, so there was no reason to think it was going to be a problem at the time of Richard's death. The Crown also mentioned that Dennis was upset about Richard's affair with a woman named Diana but it had been a year since Dennis had mentioned that to one of Richard's associates, so there was really no evidence he had ongoing upset about it. The real focus was going to be on Dennis's financial issues in contrast to his father's wealth and Dennis's desire to have some of his father's wealth. The jury heard how bad off Dennis was when it came to money. Also testifying at the trial was Diana, Richard's girlfriend. She told the jury about how she tried to contact Richard on the evening he was killed, starting at 6.30 p.m. Richard didn't answer, and his phone was the only thing missing from his office, which was the crime scene. The Crown argued that the phone was already in the possession of his killer at this point, and this was solidly when Dennis himself admitted he was in the office. The Crown also called Diana's husband to the stand, which was fair, figuring he was someone else who might have had a motive. 
but he testified that though he knew Richard and Richard's wife Connie for a decade, he was unaware that Richard and Diana had been having an affair for the last eight years. He only learned about it after the murder. The police did interview him twice and ruled him out as a suspect. The defense countered this, saying that they ruled him out prematurely and had not pulled his phone records or checked his car's GPS, which would have confirmed if he was home like he and Diana said he was. I do want to be clear that I don't get the impression that the defense was presenting the husband as an alternative suspect, but rather as evidence the police had tunnel vision and didn't do a thorough investigation into anyone except Dennis Oland. And the defense was just getting started with picking apart the investigative missteps, but before we get into all of that, we do need a little more background on the crime scene and the forensic evidence. The pathologist who conducted the autopsy testified that there were two types of injuries on Richard's body. There were round wounds about three centimeters across that had a crosshatch pattern. The other wounds were caused by a sharp edge. It was possible that there were two weapons used in the attack or two sides of a single weapon. The murder weapon or weapons were never found, but there is a tool that fits the description of the wounds, a drywall hammer. They usually have a serrated or crosshatch pattern on the front face, and then the other side is a hatchet that's used to score the drywall or make cuts. One blunt side with a crosshatch pattern and one sharp side. It's not conclusive since the weapon wasn't found at the scene and there is no evidence there would have been one in the building. So if a drywall hammer was the weapon, the killer brought it with them. And the defense asks, why would Dennis Oland have a drywall hammer in his possession? They could find no evidence that he ever owned one or purchased one. Another thing the Crown couldn't prove was where Dennis's bloody clothes went. It seemed hard to believe that Dennis didn't get any on his shoes and no more than a few drops on his jacket. Unless, along with the drywall hammer, he brought a pair of coveralls that he changed in and out of. But just like with the hammer, there was no evidence Dennis ever had anything like that. The defense then took it a step farther. What about blood transfer? How did Dennis kill his father, get blood on him, yet none of it transferred to his car? And if he changed and somehow hid bloody clothes or coveralls somewhere when he left the building, why didn't blood get anywhere else, like the reusable grocery bag he carried? That would have made sense for somewhere to stash bloody clothes, but that also tested negative for blood. Basically. If this was one of the bloodiest crime scenes they had ever seen, which was the testimony of one of the responding officers, then why wasn't there more of it on Dennis? The only blood found was on that brown jacket, so let's go ahead and get into that. Dennis was seen on security cameras at his own office wearing a brown jacket that day, and his father's secretary testified that he was in a brown jacket when she saw him. So let's go ahead and accept 
that he was wearing it that day. The jacket had been dry cleaned before the police took it into evidence, but if it had just been covered in blood, surely the dry cleaner would have taken note, and he testified that he didn't see any blood on it at all. The forensics team, however, found a few small spots, and it all came back as matching Richard Oland. The Crown argued that the jacket was dry cleaned in order to conceal the evidence, and Dennis then lied about what color jacket he was wearing in order to hide it. But the defense pointed out that it wasn't cleaned until 36 hours after the murder, so Dennis didn't seem to be in a rush. And it was his wife who took the jacket in with a number of other items. And she said the reason she took the jacket in with all these other items was because of Richard's death, but it was because she assumed they would be seeing a lot of people in the coming weeks between the funeral and well-wishers. She wanted to have everything cleaned and fresh and ready to go for those social obligations that come after a death. The defense also argued that these bloodstains could have been there since long before the murder. The spots were so small that the dry cleaner did not see them, and the blood spatter expert only saw them because he was examining the garment so closely. Even then, he missed one of the spots on two examinations. So what if these were old, faded bloodstains that Dennis didn't even know were there. The defense theorized that a skin condition Richard suffered with could have been the cause. His scalp would flake and occasionally bleed from this condition. If the two men hugged or if Dennis was leaning in to look over a document with his father, perhaps that's where the blood transfer came from. At the time of his death, Richard did not have any obvious sores on his scalp, but like has been noted, these stains could have been old. The defense also attacked the way the jacket was handled and the delays in processing it. When the jacket was first found in Dennis's closet, the lead investigator touched the sleeve with his bare hands. It was after that that a gloved officer took it and put it into a paper bag. It sat for four months before it was sent to the lab in Halifax, and then another eight months before it was analyzed. This evidence, the Crown was leaning so heavily on, sat at the bottom of a paper bag for a year. This wasn't the only piece of forensic evidence that the defense criticized. They also attacked how the scene was processed, pointing out that the blood spatter expert didn't arrive to the scene for a few days. By the time the scene was examined by the expert, multiple officers had been in and out of the office, the body had been removed, and the blood was dried and flaked. The investigators also didn't, according to the defense, test everything they could have. There was a back door that led to an alley, and the deadbolt was not dusted for prints or swabbed for DNA. 
that would have been a convenient way for someone covered in blood to leave the premises undetected. It was testified to that the door was not overlooked, but the reason it was not tested was because someone had already opened it before they could process it, thereby contaminating it. But the defense didn't buy it. They believed the door had been overlooked because the police didn't even photograph the door on that first day of the investigation. To them, it was a sign of an incomplete investigation of the crime scene. It was another thing the police overlooked in their rush to point the finger at Dennis. And the defense was going to go farther than this. It wasn't just an incomplete investigation of the scene, but actual scene contamination. Deputy Chief Glenn McCloskey entered the crime scene twice on the first day. The first time was at the request of one of the officers. He said he was there for about 45 to 60 seconds, observed the scene, and then left. He went back in the afternoon when he was not needed and not requested, and the head of forensics eventually told him and the officer he was with to leave the scene. McCloskey testified that he didn't touch anything, but he also wasn't wearing any protective clothing to prevent contamination of the scene, and neither were some of the other officers who went in there. McCloskey had also gone out that rear exit, saying that he noticed it was open, but he didn't remember if he touched the door or not, and he wasn't the only one, which, again, may have contaminated the escape path the killer took. But more shocking than the lack of protocol at the scene was an accusation that came at trial from a recently retired officer named Mike King. He told the jury that McCloskey, who was his boss, told him that he didn't have to tell anyone about McCloskey breaking protocol at the crime scene. Though McCloskey denied this conversation ever happened, a constable testified that he knew about it as well. But King said he told McCloskey that he has never lied in court and he wasn't about to start. Now, if there's anything the defense did well in this trial, it was hold the St. John's police feet to the fire. They pointed out so many holes in the investigation, other things like how the responding paramedics were not formally interviewed until a year and a half after the murder. But it was actually the accusations of possible misconduct that were the biggest bombshells. And the chief of police launched an investigation. So that was happening behind the scenes while Dennis's criminal trial continued. The jury also heard from the men in the print shop located below the crime scene. The employee, Anthony, testified that the sounds he heard from Richard's office, which if you remember were banging and then a shuffling or dragging sound, they occurred around 7.30. John, the owner of the business, however, said he wasn't so sure anymore about the timeline. He said that after he thought about it and reflected that the sounds could have been as early as 6 p.m. As we know from part one, Dennis did not have an alibi from about 6 to 7 p.m., 
but then he did after 7.30. So the time of these sounds is very important. Other important witnesses were the couple at the wharf who saw Dennis's strange actions, which he had previously told the police about and said he was just checking to see if his kids were there. The couple did not remember what time this visit to the wharf occurred, but did say it was in the late afternoon or early evening. And this becomes very relevant very quickly when a cell phone expert got on the stand. The jury heard the cell phone evidence about Richard's missing iPhone and how the last successful message received before the phone turned off was from Diana. It was a 644 text that just said, you there, question mark. According to Diana, she texted this because he hadn't answered her previous calls. Diana's cell phone sending this message pinged off a tower near her home, about 30 minutes away from Richard's office. Richard's phone pinged off a tower about one kilometer or six-tenths of a mile away from the wharf. We know cell towers are not exact. A call can be sent to a farther away tower for various reasons. And Richard's office to the cell tower was about 10 kilometers or six miles. So it was within range. But Richard's phone hadn't pinged off any tower other than the one near his office all day until the 644 ping. And using Dennis's own timeline, he would have been arriving at the wharf as early as 645 placing him and the missing phone possibly in the same area at the same time. Now, just because this could have happened doesn't make it conclusive evidence. And it really left me wondering then, why would Dennis have taken the phone? Maureen knew Dennis was at his father's office. Dennis went home and told his wife he had just come from his father's office. So it's not like he was trying to hide evidence that he and Richard were planning to meet that day. There really is just no evidence-based reasoning for why Dennis would have taken and disposed of the phone, just speculation. And to confront some of this speculation, suspicion, and witness testimony, Dennis Oland took the stand in his own defense. He denied killing his father, and he tearfully testified about his relationship with Richard. He said they loved each other in spite of their emotional distance, a distance that was somewhat enforced by Richard as he did not believe in parents being friends with their children. Dennis admitted on the stand to having financial problems at the time his father died, but he said it was due to market fluctuations, and just as the market goes down, it surely comes up again. He was not very worried about it. It was not like he hadn't been in that position before. Also, his wife was preparing to go back to work after taking some time off to deal with health issues, 
and things were already going to look up that autumn. Dennis was then asked about the last time he saw his father, and he characterized their conversation as engaging and wonderful. On cross-examination, the Crown jumped on aspects of the story Dennis told the police, like telling them that he wore the navy blazer when he didn't. And Dennis chalked this up to nervousness, speaking with the police, and the shock and grief of learning his father was dead. He said he didn't lie, he was simply mistaken. He had worn a navy blazer earlier in the day he was questioned by police, as proven by security footage. Dennis had mistakenly thought it must have been the same jacket he had worn the day before. As for the bloodstains on the brown jacket, Dennis testified that he didn't know how they got there. Maybe it was the scalp condition his father had. Maybe it was because Richard chewed his cuticles and they would sometimes bleed. And then there was a point in 2010, about a year before the murder, that Dennis was staying at his parents' house during home renovations, and he hung his stuff up in Richard's closet. Richard eventually asked him to move the clothing out because he was mixing up which clothes belonged to who. So not only did the jacket hang in Richard's closet, maybe he even mixed it up and tried to put it on one day. Dennis could only speculate how the blood got there because according to him, he had no idea it was there and he hadn't killed his father. The color of the jacket was not the only issue with Dennis's formal statement. It was Dennis's timeline of when he arrived at his father's office and his travels back and forth that seemed to also be a big issue. Dennis said he got to Richard's office at 5.15, but didn't make it all the way up before he turned around and went back to his office. He gave details on what streets he took and even said he got distracted at one point and went wrong way on a one-way street. Then he arrived back around 5.30 and stayed until 6.30. But the police had pulled CCTV footage from the area. A restaurant security camera across the street from Richard's office caught Dennis outside of his father's office at 6.12 p.m. on the evening of the murder. He was carrying that reusable grocery bag, and he started walking one way, and then he changed course and went across the street. They then had more security footage of Dennis at his car from about 6.12 until 6.15, he opened and closed his hatchback and then got into the car and drove off. These movements were entirely left out of his statement to the police. So now testifying in court, Dennis admitted he had omitted this from his statement, and for the first time, he gave this new story. Dennis testified that he had left his father's office at 6.12 and headed to his car but then he remembered that he parked it somewhere else, so then he headed towards where his car actually was. He considered stopping at a drugstore to get a pain reliever since his knee was bothering him, but changed his mind and just went to his car. According to Dennis, that explains the change in direction. Then, once at his car, Dennis said he put some things in the back, read some emails on his phone, sent a text, and then he took off his jacket as he got into the car. 
Shortly after pulling away, he remembered that he had forgotten a family history book in his father's office. So he pulled into a gravel area, parked, and went back upstairs. Dennis said that the book was on the table, which was where Maureen, the secretary, had said she left it for Dennis earlier in the day. Dennis said he and Richard chatted for a few more minutes, and then Dennis left again for the third time, a little after 6.30. The police had found that book that Dennis went back for in Dennis's things and had it tested. There was no blood on it, even though it would have been in the middle of a bloody crime scene. So the book was not in the room when Richard was killed. And Dennis's testimony was that it was in the room until he left going home, meaning he couldn't have been in the room when Richard was killed. But of course, we only have his word for it because it's not like there's footage of him walking out book in hand. Dennis also had to address that trip to the wharf in his testimony. He said that the witnesses were correct in what they saw. He said that what he had picked up from the ground was a piece of broken glass that was on the pathway. He didn't want anyone to step on it and get hurt. They had said they saw him wrap it in something and put it in his bag, and he did that because it was glass and he was trying to secure it until he could safely throw it away. Then he went to the end of the wharf to see if his kids were swimming. And all of this is in line with what the couple said happened. They even testified that he looked towards the lighthouse and then to the playground, and those were the directions he would have been looking if he was checking to see if his children were there. Dennis then quickly walked to his car, like the witnesses said, because his wife wasn't feeling well, and she had asked him to come straight home, and here he was already having made a stop. I'm not going to weigh in on guilt one way or the other here, except that I do want to say something about Dennis's story. So let's walk through it a little bit. He went to his father's office, remembered he left something at work, went back there, realized he didn't have his pass, went back to his father's office, got distracted going the wrong way on a one-way street, He forgot where he parked. He walked to the drugstore, but then decided not to go in. He stopped to see if his kids were at a wharf, even when he was supposed to go straight home. He forgot the logbook at the office. He didn't know what color blazer he wore the day before. And that text he sent at 612, he sent it to his sister, Lisa, instead of his wife, Lisa. And the Crown was arguing that all of this was a sign that Dennis was flustered. He was stressed about asking his dad for money. And after it went south, he was stressed and discombobulated because he had just killed somebody. And they're really assigning motives to his actions. And his actions are indecisive, impulsive, and forgetful, which is just another day for a lot of us. I just hate seeing this laid out as evidence of being a horrible and deceptive person as if no normal person would act like this for any other reason. But lots of us act like this all the time to varying degrees. I would have been much more swayed by this if it was shown in context of how Dennis usually acted. If he was usually not impulsive, if he was detail-oriented, I can see this as he's deviating from his normal behavior. But it's also possible this is his normal behavior. 
Okay, so back to the trial. In closing arguments, the defense pointed out that the lack of forensic evidence was the reasonable doubt. They didn't even find blood on Dennis's phone, which we know he answered at 636, which was shortly after the murder had taken place, according to the police. There just seemed to be no way that Dennis Oland could have committed this crime, and all the blood evidence amounted to were a few drops that were nearly invisible. The Crown had to acknowledge that this was a circumstantial case and that the police did make missteps in their investigation, but the conclusion that Dennis killed his father was the only reasonable one in their view. Dennis Oland was the last person to see Richard alive, and the overkill indicated that this was a crime of passion. This was someone who was a very angry and someone who knew Richard well enough to be that angry at him. Additionally, the last cell phone ping was off a tower near the wharf at the time Dennis was there. It seemed likely, to the Crown at least, that Dennis and the phone were together, and it seemed logical that the person who took the phone was also the killer. They told the jury it was not a coincidence that Dennis remembered what shoes and pants he was wearing accurately, but then got the color of his blazer wrong when that jacket was the one piece of his clothing with forensic evidence on it. They told the jury he was purposely lying to lead the police to the wrong jacket. After closing statements, the judge summed up the case for the jury and gave them their instructions. He did tell them that this was a circumstantial case, and he made a few points for them. He reminded them that the bar was beyond any reasonable doubt for a guilty verdict. He also told them that if he believed the men in the print shop heard the sounds connected to Richard's murder and believed the evidence indicated the noise was around 7.30, they would have to find Dennis not guilty since there was evidence he wasn't there. He also told them the DNA evidence from the jacket was not conclusive, and it was up to them to decide if it was from the crime scene or if the DNA had been on the jacket prior to this. When the jury took the case, the Olins felt good about how the trial went, believing that Dennis would be found not guilty. They believed in his innocence and trusted that the jury would see what they saw, a weak case from the prosecution but the jury did not see it that way. After four days of deliberation in December 2015, Dennis Oland was found guilty of second-degree murder. Dennis collapsed at the announcement of the verdict. The Oland family, both Dennis's mother Connie and Richard's brother Derek, issued statements of support for Dennis and let the public know that their belief in his innocence had not changed. Derek said that he continued to put his trust in Dennis's legal team, a clear indication they would be appealing even before sentencing occurred. The sentence for second-degree murder in Canada is life with the possibility of parole somewhere between 10 and 25 years. Those are the minimum and the maximum. The jury had recommended the minimum, though the Crown was arguing for more time before parole eligibility. The Olin family declined the opportunity to issue victim impact statements, instead supporting Dennis as character witnesses. 
The judge said he believed that Dennis had snapped due to the immense stress he was under and acknowledged that Richard was a difficult man and that there was a long-standing dysfunction within the family. He said this was a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. The judge then went with the jury's recommendation of life with the possibility of parole after 10 years. And finally, citing the importance of transparency, the judge granted a petition from CBC News to release Dennis's full interrogation video. At trial, the jury had only seen half of it, as the prosecution and defense agreed that they would only see what was said before Dennis asked for an attorney, and not the accusations the police hurled at the otherwise silent Dennis. Three days after the verdict, as the St. John police were coming off this win, the New Brunswick Police Commission began their investigation into them. The New Brunswick Police Commission is an independent oversight commission, so it's not like the St. John's police were investigating themselves. This investigation was being tackled in two parts. One would be a review of the forensic protocol issues, including any contamination and carelessness at the scene. The other review was into the allegations made against the deputy chief, Glenn McCloskey, for making unauthorized visits to the crime scene and allegedly telling someone not to admit to anyone that he had been there. Meanwhile, Dennis filed his appeal, and he also applied for bail while his appeal was being heard, which was denied, and that really wasn't a surprise. The province had never granted bail to someone convicted of murder before. He then appealed the denial of the bail decision. But before the matter of bail made its way up the courts in October 2016, the Court of Appeal did find in Dennis's favor on one point of the appeal of his conviction. The judge's instructions to the jury were ruled not proper regarding the evidence surrounding the jacket. If you remember the few jury instructions I did go over, the judge would say, if you find this, then you have to find him not guilty. If you find this, you have to find this and this to get to your verdict. The Court of Appeal found that some of the evidence related to the jacket was not properly set up for the jury. Even if the jury believed Dennis had purposely lied about what he had been wearing that day, they would also have to find that he lied for the purpose of concealing involvement in the murder. This instruction was not clear to the jury, and because that very well could have been the evidence that pushed the jury towards guilty, it was enough for a new trial. And with the conviction quashed, Dennis was given bail and released to his family after 10 months in prison. While free on bail, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that Dennis Oland should have been allowed to bail out while he was waiting on his appeal because he was not a danger to the public, he was not a flight risk, and his appeal was not based on frivolous claims, but rather on solid procedural issues. This ended up being a precedent-setting court ruling, even though by the time it was made, it didn't apply to Dennis Oland anymore. But for other people in his shoes in the future, this set new guidelines 
when evaluating whether or not to grant bail during an appeal. Dennis and his team had a new strategy going into the retrial. They wanted a bench trial, judge only, no jury. And like we saw in the Lloyd Rainey case from Australia a few episodes ago, this isn't entirely the choice of the defendant in Canada. They have to apply for a judge-only trial. And Dennis Oland essentially had the same argument Lloyd Rainey had. The incredible amount of media coverage and public discussion over guilt or innocence would make a fair and unbiased jury unlikely. However, in this case, the attorney general refused the request. But then finding a jury turned out to be difficult. In October 2018, they did finalize a panel and even scheduled the trial. But then it turned out that a police officer had run background checks on some of the prospective jurors. He was checking to see if they had any run-ins with the police that might lead them to view law enforcement in a negative light. The court ruled that these background checks were improper. It was essentially jury shopping. So not only was a mistrial declared and the jury dismissed, the judge announced that the Crown was not going to get another chance to pick a jury. They were moving ahead with a bench trial as the defense requested. And then an investigation into the police officer's actions would be held after the retrial. So now we are up to three investigations into police actions pertaining to the murder of Richard Oland and the trial of Dennis Oland. The new trial finally started in November 2018, and to lessen the impact on witnesses and the expense of the trial, both sides consented to having certain witness testimony just be played back from the first trial. If there wasn't going to be a change in the questioning, there would be no reason to redo it. But there were some witnesses who testified in person, like the men from the print shop and Richard's secretary. We also got some new evidence at this retrial. A man found some post-it notes while walking in a wooded area near the St. John Water Tower. This was a little more than a month after the murder. While he turned them over to police immediately, they did not see any relevance in them. However, that seems odd because these notes were very clearly about Richard Oland. They look like someone's just quick jotted down notes. Two of them look like they were writing about genealogy because one mentions Susanna Oland coming to Canada with her beer recipe in 1865, and another includes names of Oland family members, including Richard Oland. In the corner of the note with Richard's name on it is also a list of three names, Mike, Stephen, and Mark, with the word policemen next to it. Those happen to be the first names of three of the investigators who were looking into Richard Oland's murder. There were also odd things written down, probably not odd to the person who wrote them, but odd to anyone who didn't know the context. I think that's a better way to put it. They lacked context. I have a note in front of me right now that says 4619, Howell, and 18 minutes, 28 seconds. 
I know why that note says all three of those things, none of which are connected to each other. And it probably doesn't make much sense to the rest of you. I mean, Howell might if you're one of my Patreon supporters at the $5 level, since that was the most recent bonus episode. But these little notes are reminders to myself, and they are written as such. The notes in this case say things like alcoholic under someone's name, and the words John insured, other words that look like ED laundry singer, and something that looks like Conrad died. And then on two of the notes, there are three letters followed by numbers. Now, maybe these are abbreviations for an account. Maybe they're tickers and they indicate stock prices. Without context, we don't know. But what we do know is that they have the information about someone who was found murdered on them. So they should seem relevant. However, they were not followed up on. Maureen, Richard's secretary, was not shown them to see if she recognized the handwriting. And a hair-like fiber found stuck to one of them was never tested. The police's answer to this was that they were weathered. It was pretty clear they had been damaged from being outside and unlikely to yield usable prints or DNA. But the defense said that doesn't mean they couldn't have done something with them. Without more evidence or word-of-the-day context, I don't think we can say that this provides any insight into the case, except, again, to show an avenue the police could have investigated that they didn't. At this trial, like the first one, there was a considerable amount of testimony about the cell phone and about how the last message was delivered at 644, and then after that, the calls went right to voicemail and text messages were undelivered. The defense did try to argue that there was a chance the phone was still at the office in St. John at that point. But the Crown argued that was very unlikely because cell phones are programmed to find the strongest signal they can. And even if they can connect to a tower farther away, they're more likely to connect to a closer tower because of the stronger signal. In this case, there were two towers closer to the office and with a stronger signal. But the defense could also argue here that it didn't really matter because the murder didn't happen at 6.30. It happened at 7.30. So even if, for whatever reason, Dennis took his father's phone and threw it in the wharf, his father was still alive. And there is additional information here to support that 7.30 time. When the police had canvassed the area around the crime scene the day after the body was found, they were told by a woman that she had heard a loud yelling sound on the night of the murder, and she put the time at approximately 7.30. Unfortunately, this is another area where the defense can point out a gap in the investigation. The police did not talk to her again, for six years, and they did not do a formal interview with her. Her statement ended up being sent to them in October 2017 over email. And then there was a new witness at this trial. Jerry Lowe was at the restaurant across from Richard's building, and he said he saw a man leaving the building that night. 
He did not remember what time he was there exactly, but thanks to security cameras, we do know. He arrived at 7.40 and left at 8.35. If Jerry saw a man leaving the building around that time, he may have seen the killer, and we know that couldn't have been Dennis Oland because he was grocery shopping 20 minutes away. Now, there is a little caveat to Jerry's testimony. This was a restaurant he ate at regularly, so it is possible that he was remembering the wrong night, and it may have been the night before the murder that he saw someone come out. However, it still opens up the possibility that someone else had been in the building. This is in line with the time of the noises that Anthony, the print shop employee, had heard, and in line with the shouting that the woman walking by said she heard. The prosecution did try to make Anthony's timeline a little less certain than he was because John, the owner, testified that it could have been anywhere from 6 to 8 p.m. However, that is not what he initially said. When first questioned, John put the time between 7.30 and 7.45. He then repeated that in a videotaped statement to the family's private investigator saying it was between 7.30 and 8. So the two statements to the closest time of the murder, John said the sounds were from 7.30 or later. But then by the time of the first trial, his memory had faded and he wasn't as sure. When asked about this at retrial, he said it was because he wasn't really paying attention to the time. And on reflection, he realized it could have been earlier than he said. The defense straight up accused John of backing away from his initial time frame because he thought Dennis was guilty. He adamantly denied this, saying that he was just trying to be as accurate as possible, and the sounds really could have been earlier. Now, our memories are not designed to get more detailed as time passes, and John may really have felt that his initial time frame was too narrow. I personally do not think he was lying in either instance. I think he was saying what he believed to be true at the time. That said, when in doubt, I tend to lean towards the statement made closest to when the incident happened, because that will be the freshest, most accurate memory. Another new witness we have in the retrial was a forensic toxicologist testifying for the defense. And he tackled an issue that came up at the first trial, but it was sort of left hanging there. And that was Richard's blood alcohol level. The pathologist who conducted the autopsy said that it was consistent with alcohol consumption several hours prior to death. Maureen, the secretary, testified that Richard had not had alcohol that day. They never had any in the office and Richard never left the office. He had pizza for lunch, and Maureen was the one who picked it up for him, so she knows he didn't also grab a beer with the pizza. The alcohol levels in Richard's system didn't make sense if the pathologist was saying he drank hours before death, but he had no alcohol accessible to him during that time. So at this retrial, the defense had their own expert testify 
that it may have been that Richard consumed a small amount of alcohol an hour before his death. So if Dennis had left and someone came in to have a drink with Richard in the office, or if Richard stepped out to meet someone for a drink and then they went back to the office, that would account for the blood alcohol level. It's just one possible explanation. Some other new information that came out had to do with the conduct of the police. One of the responding officers said that he was dispatched to a call about an unconscious man who was not breathing. He had not been told anything else, and had he realized what they were walking into, he would have put on protective gear. The head of forensics admitted that many of the officers were not wearing gloves at the scene and that the scene was not protected against contamination. And that included officers coming to the scene that didn't need to be there and should not have been there. The defense accused the police of treating the scene like a tourist attraction. Sergeant Greg Oram was with Chief Deputy McCloskey when he was at the scene unauthorized. He said that they both entered without protective gear, walked around the office, got within several feet of the body, and that McCloskey half sat on the desk. He also claimed McCloskey said that he hoped this was a suicide and it would be easier if there was a gun under Richard's body. At that point, the head of forensics came back in the room and kicked them out. At the retrial, McCloskey again testified and was faced with these accusations. He admitted he shouldn't have been at the crime scene, but he denied telling anyone to lie about his attendance, and he denied that he ever leaned on the desk. McCloskey was having to testify to these accusations at trial while he was still facing some heat because of them. Though the Halifax Regional Police investigation cleared him of wrongdoing, the New Brunswick Police Commission was still working on their investigation. In December 2018, during Dennis Olin's criminal trial, the New Brunswick Police Commission came to their conclusion. They found that McCloskey had willfully or negligently made false statements with intent to deceive, falsify, or mislead. The accusation that he suggested to someone that they lie about his presence at the scene was found to be substantiated. The commission, however, could not discipline him for this because it only has the authority to discipline active officers. McCluskey had retired before the hearing and later said that this situation had been causing him so much stress that he felt retirement was his only option. But back to Dennis's retrial, he did again testify in his own defense, but the testimony was not substantially different than what we've already heard. By the end of this second trial, they had spent four months hearing from 61 witnesses and going over more than 300 pieces of evidence. And much like we've seen in other bench trials, unlike jury trials, it does take longer to get a verdict. So it took two months before learning the outcome of the retrial. The judge ruled that while he believed there was reason to suspect Dennis Oland, there was not the evidence to convict him. Dennis was found not guilty. 
A month after Dennis's acquittal, Public Prosecution Services issued a statement saying that they found no grounds to appeal the acquittal. The legal battle was finally over. The St. John police have said that this is no longer an active investigation, though the case is officially unsolved. And the impact of the trial and the cloud of suspicion was huge for the Oland family. Dennis and his wife Lisa separated in early 2020, about six months after his acquittal, and Dennis moved in with his mother. Lisa reported that she lost a lot over the course of the marriage, having trouble keeping her businesses afloat during the trials. She had moved into his family's home that he was then preparing to sell out from under her. And when asked about debts Dennis left her with, Lisa claimed Dennis told her to go talk to someone about bankruptcy. Lisa also filed a domestic violence complaint against Dennis. This was filed under seal, and there was a publication ban on it. The media, however, argued that there was public interest in the contents of what Lisa filed due to the high-profile nature of the case. They wanted it unsealed. Lisa was adamantly against this, She had made the complaint with the understanding that it was confidential, and she was worried that others would see the information become public and not feel safe if they filed against their own abusive partners. For the sake of public confidence in the system and to prevent her own re-victimization, Lisa wanted her privacy respected. But as is a huge debate in true crime circles today, who owns information? Who owns the right to information? And do victims have a right to keep their court battles private? In this case, the judge ruled that the alleged victim did not have that right. The publication ban was lifted. However, there was a 14-day pause in the release while Lisa had the opportunity to appeal the decision. And then, in May 2021, Lisa's accusations of abuse were published 11 months after the matter had been resolved by her and Dennis. If you want to read the details yourself, Google exists. The court may have seen public interest greater than the surviving victim's privacy, but I certainly feel otherwise. We don't need the details to understand this in the context of this case. Lisa did accuse Dennis of physical abuse. And one incident in the filing has been substantiated by witnesses because they were the ones who called the police when they heard fighting. Lisa told the police at the time that everything was fine because this was just before Dennis's second trial. She didn't want public opinion to turn on Dennis if it became public that someone had accused him of violence. She believed his behavior was rooted in his PTSD related to the death of his father, being imprisoned, and the stress of the trials. Lisa had, however, dropped the fight for a restraining order when the two settled things out of court. She had been moving on when the publication ban was lifted and all of the painful details were made public. It has been over a year since then, and Dennis Oland has stayed out of the media. 
he has continued to maintain his innocence. The Olin family has to live, believing that the police's tunnel vision on Dennis not only saw him wrongfully convicted before he was finally acquitted, but it also let Richard Olin's true murderer get away with it. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 